Hey guys, this is our weekly podcast by Cornerstone Church of Ione. We're so glad that you decided to join. We are a church family passionate about seeing people worship Jesus, grow in their faith, and serve those around them. If you would like to learn more about Cornerstone, please visit us at cornerstoneione.org, or you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles, let's go and get those open to... um, Luke chapter 24, 13 through 48. Some of you guys would be like, you're going to look at that, you're going to be like, you're playing with me, Brian. You're leaving like three verses for the end. Yeah, so just, for the, just so you know how this progresses, after today, we have two more in Luke. And then uh, after that, we have a mini series we're doing. And it's essentially, and, and Tom can change these, Tom's going to lead this series, but it's essentially looking at the inner workings of uh, faith, works, and love. That there's this, there's this common, not, not uh, what's, the, what's the doormat and the place Matt say? Faith, hope, and love, right? Or, or right? No, we're gonna do uh, faith, works, and love. There's actually an intermingling between those together and we wanna look at what that looks like. And, uh, and I don't want to give away very much of the sermon series now, but Tom's going to do three weeks of that. Uh, he has been working on this series for years and years and years and years and years. And so uh, I finally asked him, I'm like, hey, between Luke and Acts, we have room for a mini series. Would you want to do that? And then he actually wrote it up, uh, wrote, the, wrote the sermons up, and he thought that he was going to write it up and I was going to preach it. And I said, I said, no, I want you to preach it. He said, how many? I said, all of them. Why don't you do all, all three of them right in a row? And so he's going to do that. I'm super pumped about it. I think we're going to learn a lot through that. It's been something. I mean, he's a, he's a brainiac, super smart. And so being able to take those very, those things that are even like things culturally we understand, right? The, the murderer is going to understand what faith is in some way, uh, what, what works are and deeds are in some way. And uh, you would think in some level, love. So if the words can understand that, and then we come here, what does the Bible say about those things and how they work together? Super pumped about that. So we got uh, two more after this. We have this one, then next week and the following week in Luke. And then we have three weeks of faith, works, and love and the intermingling of them. And we had some, CJ came with, he's, he's pretty cool with, with words sometimes. He said, uh, he's like, we should name it Faith Loves to Work. Huh? All right, well. <laughs> More creative than I am. So anyways, and then we're going to dive into Acts. And Acts, uh, we're going to probably do throughout Acts two mini-series through in the middle of that too because Acts is going to take us a while. And uh, Acts is a crazy cool book of the Bible. It essentially talks about what did the church look like when Jesus ascends to heaven and then he says, and then Jesus gives the Great Commission and then it's kind of like, but wait. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, and it's going to be better, it's going to be more beneficial for you that I'm gone so that you can receive the Holy Spirit. And then we're going to see the church blast off over on the other side of the world and how it made its way around here. So, pretty pumped about that. Last week, um, just out of curiosity, how many were here last week? Perfect. CJ preached last week. And uh, that is always a nice little treat. I went up to a wedding. Some of you guys know uh, Joel Buvin. Um, he didn't stay 12. Like he actually, asked, when, when they moved up to Washington, he kept, he kept growing up. And so we went up there, went to that wedding. Uh, super cool uh, to, see, to see him. So I appreciate uh, CJ being able to preach while he's gone. And um, I saw Tony. I don't know if you'd even recognize Tony right now. Uh, he's got this beard going on. He's just like, you know, he's just, 
I mean, I looked, I didn't even recognize him at first. And, uh, and his joke was, uh, because I kind of made a joke that I regretted immediately to him. And then uh, he fired back. He's like, he's like, oh, he's like, who's covering you while you're gone? I said, oh, CJ is. He goes, well, I hear he's a better preacher than you anyways. I was like, well, he probably is. Nice to see you, Tony. See you later. But, you know, I was, had a good conversation with him. And so a real cool time. CJ preached, did a wonderful job. Um, CJ, one of the things that he, that he hit right off the beginning, and then there's something he hit towards the end that I thought were just really good. Uh, one is, he said, quote, our proximity to Jesus does not determine our salvation. Faith in Jesus saves us, not our proximity to Jesus or churchy stuff. Right? Let me say that again. Th- think about this. This is really good for us to wrap our minds around because there's so many of us uh, that have been wrongly taught that what you need to do to be saved is churchy stuff because God sees churchy stuff and he says, whoa, look at that human being, how great they are. I want him to be with me. And really, uh, the, what the Bible teaches, and if you've been here at Cornerstone at all, you already know this, but uh, we rebelled against that God, and we are filthy sinners, and our best works on our best day are like filthy rags to him, and we can't save ourselves because we've been separated from God, so then we're in need of a Savior. And the Old Testament r- reveals over and over and over again, we need somebody to save us because we can't be righteous, right? We can't reconcile that relationship with God on our own. We need the debt of our sin to be be paid. And then Jesus Christ comes and he lives that life, uh, fulfilling Old Testament, fulfilling what we failed, and then dies on the cross sinless so then he can take the punishment of man. And we can, as we place our faith in Christ, have our sin debt forgiven. And then on the day that we see uh, the Lord, we stand there and what, what we have is Christ's works imputed into us and we don't deserve that. And so why would that happen? Grace and mercy and love, right? God so loved the world that he had this mercy and were saved by grace through this faith. And so it's not the churchy stuff. Uh, I think it's cool if you come from a Christian family, but it doesn't save you. I think it's cool if you come here every week and you sit in the pews, but that in itself does not save you. I think it's cool uh, for you high rollers that come in and you give a lot and we're able to do really neat things for the kingdom, but it doesn't save you. What you need is Jesus. And... So let me read you again what uh, CJ said. Our proximity to Jesus does not determine our salvation. Faith in Jesus saves us, not our proximity to Jesus or churchy stuff. Did you catch that theological term at the end? <laughs> churchy stuff. That's good. Uh, another thing that he, uh, he said towards the end, as he is describing um, kind of the, that, you know, briefly talks about that Holy Week and then those last couple days where Jesus is betrayed and handed over uh, and crucified on the cross and there's like these beatings happening and um, this mocking. He reminds us that our own sinfulness is not dissimilar to that of the ones who beat and crucified Jesus. Sometimes we think, well, like, I'm not that sinful. And he pointed out that our own sinfulness is not that far from or in any way dissimilar than those people beating Jesus. Now, we are all these sinners, and uh, we have nothing to boast about. And the reason we have nothing to boast about is because we're not saved by our deeds, by our works. So then somebody may say, well, how does faith, works, and love work together? I'd be like, that's the point of the series in a couple weeks, right? We're going to look at that. It's going to be super cool. All right, so then today we jump into 24. We're going to go uh, through 24. But um, I, one, one day I was working on the sermon. And I'm like, I want to kind of give us a ramp into 24. We're getting towards the end. 
And so I want to give us a little ramp into this passage here uh, because I'm kind of trying to set us up for Acts also. So um, before we go there, uh, we're going to go, we're not going to read anything from it, but I'm going to take us back to uh, Luke chapter 22. But before we do that, let's pray together. Father, I pray that now as we study your word together, that that's what it would be. There'd be no uh, misconception that, um, that anybody in this room is God, but that we're here to worship you as God. Now we study your word as an infallible truth. We stand upon it, and it is the compass for our life. And as we are able to see in a very general 30,000-foot way who you are and what you've done, um, I pray that our lives would be changed over and over and over and over again. God, we love you. I pray that you would give me uh, the words you'd like me to say and help me hold my tongue on the things that you would not have me say. We love you. And in Jesus Christ's name, amen. All right, so this ramp starts in chapter 22. And so let me kind of like work my way into chapter 24. We have a Trinitarian God. So God is Father, God is Son, and God is Spirit. Come to live among us, right? Uh, so God in his Trinitarian oneness is in, is in uh, heaven. And um, the redemption plan that that perfect God, sovereign God, omniscient God uh, created is that he is going to come to earth and then he's going to pay the price for sin in our place, right? And so uh, that moment where God comes to earth in the form of Jesus, God, man, that is what we call the incarnation, so if you've ever heard that word, that's what it is. God becoming man. God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. So he comes in the name, in, in, in the name of Jesus, in the person of Jesus, fully God, fully man. And then he lives a sinless life. One time I was preaching, I said he lived a perfect life. And uh, one of my friends, um, I'm, not, I'm not super convinced he's uh, uh, like a theological genius, but in his simplicity, he came up to me and said, hey, he was like, I just wanted to uh, bring something up. He's like, you keep saying that Jesus lived a perfect life. He's like, I think that can be confusing. Because sometimes we can think of perfect life as an easy life, right? You ever look at like somebody else's life and you're like, man, they just have like this perfect life. And what you mean is not that they act perfectly, but there's this life that just seems like just pleasant. It's the one that you want. And it's essentially like, not that they don't have troubles, but they have such nice things. You're not focused on their troubles. You're looking at their things, their life, their vacations, right? Instead of being like, oh, I don't want to cook, but I can't afford to go out to eat. I guess I'll make, you know, another box of mac and cheese. They're like, they just like, if they want to go out to eat, they go out to eat. There's no stress in that. That doesn't impact their marriage. And we look at this life, we're like, that's just a perfect life. And... And his point, I think, is good. I don't want somebody to listen to me say he lived a perfect life and think that what that means is that, he, that Jesus had an easy life. And I think that if you've sat even through this series, we've been going through Luke, and we're not really digging into Luke too much. We're getting a 30,000-foot view of Luke in his uh, account of the gospel, that we would see that Jesus uh, was followed by many and ridiculed by many. And he ended up, his life culminated in his own willful sacrifice on the cross where he was put to death innocently. And so when I say uh, sinless, the reason I say sinless is to make our minds understand what's happening. Jesus did not sin. If he had sinned, he would not be God and he could not pay for sin on the cross. 
because he'd have to atone for his own sin, which the high priests were doing already. But in Hebrews, it talks about Jesus is the ultimate high priest now and forever. That's why when you sin, we don't teach you that you need to necessarily come and confess to me. You have a mediator now, and that is Jesus Christ, the ultimate high priest now and forever. And you go and repent, and you have this intimate relationship with the Lord yourself. Although, there's a whole other area we could talk about, I guess, confessing sin to one another in hopes of love and accountability. Um, the truth is that you have not lived a sinless life, right? So, no, so no, usually in my younger days, I'd be like, raise your hand if you think you've lived a, lived a sinless life. And my, my hope, my, I, would, I would just assume nobody's going to raise their hand because we're all uh, intimately aware with how fallen we are. Well, sometimes um, I'm not right about what I assume, and you know what that means. So then what I do now is say it's rhetorical. I would hope we all know we're all sitting here being like, yes, I've absolutely made a mistake. You're married. If you don't think you've made a mistake, I can just talk to your spouse and we can clear that up really easily. Okay? When you have kids, your mistakes are in your face. Right? Um, there's, a, there's a story that of, of, a, of a man who is, he's a pastor of a church. This is not about me. It's going to sound a lot like me, but it's not. Uh, he's a pastor of a church. And uh, long story short, he's running around the house Sunday morning, snapping at his family. You know, we got to go. We got to go, you know. And, uh, and, and it all boils down to the reason he was snapping at people and being, uh, you know, rude and losing his temper with his family is because he had, to, he had to get to the pancake breakfast at church. And his son brings up something um, and calls him essentially on like, like you're, you're yelling at us and stomping on us in order to get to the pancake breakfast at church. And uh, I think that we experience that. So I think it doesn't take long for us, one way or another, whatever story you have, where we can be reminded of our sinfulness. And so then we are all in that place. And I would also assume that, that you don't know anybody who's perfect. Only God is perfect. And he's the only one able to pay for sin on the cross because of his sinlessness. And then we see, uh, we see Jesus has met John the Baptist, uh, the one who is sent to prepare the way for the Lord. Uh, we call, uh, he is called the forerunner. So some of us, when we hear forerunner, we think of Jesus, and some of us think of a really cool SUV. Okay? Forerunner, when you hear that, what we're looking at, like that is John the Baptist. It was prophesied that there would be a forerunner, one who came before Jesus to prepare the way for him. And he would, and he would be preaching, essentially, uh, repent from your sins and turn to God. Repent of your sins and turn to God. And he began baptizing people. And in fact, as uh, Jesus uh, I got to the age of 30, he was baptized by John the Baptist. And then he goes into uh, the wilderness and is tempted uh, by Satan. And he remains sinless through that. He remains faithful. And then Jesus' ministry begins. And so if we were to summarize uh, a gross summary of Jesus' ministry, it looks like this. He teaches, he casts out demons, he claims to be the way, the truth, and the light, and he calls disciples to himself. Jesus seeks the sick, he heals, he teaches, he performs miracles, and he moves. Jesus uh, seeks the sick, he heals, he teaches, he performs miracles, and he moves. Over and over and over again. And what that does is it creates 
a following and why. So one would be, you would ask, like, why would people follow Jesus? Well, first off, if you are uh, carrying your, your son in a casket to bury him in this Jesus man comes and raises that son to life and the community hears about that, they're going to rally and say, who is this man? And people keep coming to him saying, I have sick family at home. I have somebody who is dying here. I am sick. I have, I have leprosy. I can't walk. I can't see. And Jesus is healing and healing and healing. And all of a sudden, you begin, these people were waiting for the Messiah to come. And you already had John the Baptist coming, preparing the way. And so maybe sentences are heightened. And then Jesus comes and begins doing Jesus-y stuff. And fulfilling those prophecies and saying that he's the fulfillment of those prophecies. And so then you're listening to what he's saying. And some of the things that Jesus teaches are so out of this world. Like there's one way to the Father and it's through me. All the Old Testament prophecies are pointing to me. And we're going to get to that in our section of text again this morning. And so then you can step back and be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Why are we going to believe this guy? And then the dead man gets out of the casket. Right? And the person who couldn't walk ever can now get up and run off. The one who is blind sees over and over and over again. The ones who are possessed by demons. So now you get into the spiritual world, right? Some of us were like, well, maybe like he was a sneaky doctor who is really good at what he does. Which we all know is a foolish comment. But then you get to the spiritual world where people are actually possessed by demons. And they don't know what to do with these people. In fact, they cast them outside the city and they chain them up. These are so crazy, so out of control, so disruptive, so evil. And then Jesus comes and begins casting out demons. And these people who are possessed by demons now are calm and loving and followers of Jesus. He begins changing that part of the world. The known world begins changing. People begin believing this. Now, you may also ask, well, the Bible records that. And just a side note, I love this. If we look at this, we're like, well, that's a really old historical document there. Some believe it's the infallible word of God. How do we know that those things really happen? And one of the questions we go to, are secular historians of the time reporting the same things Jesus are doing? Or is secular society quiet on the subject? And in fact, what you'd find is secular historians of the time were all saying the same thing about Jesus. That people are reporting that he's healing people, he's bringing people uh, to life, he's casting out demons, lame people are no longer lame, blind people are no longer blind. And so the secular historians are saying the same thing. We come to the Bible and we are able to see eyewitness testimony in the interviews of eyewitness testimonies. It's incredible. And he teaches and preaches and then he affirms it with miraculous wonders. And then as he goes about doing those two things, there are particular events that are being taken place that are fulfilling the prophecies from hundreds of years earlier. Luke chapter 2, verse 11, says this. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. The world needed to know that they needed a Savior, and that Savior came. 
And Jesus is that Savior, as Luke chapter 2 says. Romans 10 says, If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Uh, Lord and Savior. You ever hear, hear that phrase? Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Savior, we can wrap our minds around, that there is one way to be saved, and that's through Jesus Christ. He is our Savior. The Old Testament, when they realize they need a Savior, it's Jesus. New Testament, they realize, I need a Savior, it's Jesus. Now, when you realize, I need a Savior, it's Jesus. He is the one that made it possible to be reconciled to God, so that when we die, that there is heaven and that there is hell. And we're all deserving of hell because of our rebellious actions and natures towards God. But we can be reconciled to God and go to heaven. So Romans 10.9 says that if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. So we know the Savior part. The Lord is that He is ruler over your life. He is Lord and Savior. You submit to Him as ruler over your life. And he is your Savior. During this time that the Gospels record of Jesus going around and doing what I just said, preaching and teaching, seeking sick and healing them, and, and making claims that he is God and that he is the Savior and that he is the way, the truth, and the life, he goes through, it's approximately 3,100 miles. That's a long ways by foot. Uh, we got a couple people in here that ride bikes often. And uh, I got a bike, and I rode it from here to Tom Reed's house. Some of you guys can hit a golf ball past his house from here. And I told Tom, I'm like, hey, I'm going to come to your house. I'm going to ride my bike because he's a bike guy, so I thought he'd like that. I show up huffing and puffing, and he just makes fun of me the whole time I'm there because it's so ridiculous. I rode it's less than half a mile. But there's a hill up to his house, and that's actually what got me. But I do have an electric bike, so. <laughs> Imagine 3,100 miles on foot. In fact, our passage that we're going to read is, um, is a trek from Jerusalem to Emmaus, which is seven miles. Uh, my dad used to run on a treadmill, and, he's like, and he'd be like, man, I run like three to five miles every day. I'm like, okay, <laughs> three to five miles. Like, you know, I can do that in my sleep. And so one of the days I was, I was at his house, um, I got on the treadmill. And uh, when I saw how fast the little ticker was going, I quit. Because I got to like, you know, 0.12 miles. I'm like, no, 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 no. And I go back and tell my dad, I'm like, three to five miles, that's a long ways every day. I can't imagine 3,100 miles walking with people, preaching and teaching. And not taking, having a bunch of resources, relying upon other people around you. That's his ministry. 29 distinct places he visited. That's cities and places within cities. Over the course of three years, all the while we see, and I pointed this out so we got it right, towards the end of the Gospels we start seeing, and so he headed towards Jerusalem, and he headed towards Jerusalem, and he headed towards Jerusalem over and over again. Because that is where he was going. Why did Jesus know he was going to go to Jerusalem? You've got to remember that Jesus was not um, absent-minded about why he was here on earth and what his job was, he knew and he began to tell his disciples about it that I must go to Jerusalem, I must be handed over to these people, I must be beaten, mocked, and crucified, and I'll raise again in three days. And we see over and over again, they're like, okay. But they just didn't get it. He's like, he's like hey, remember, remember uh, um, Jonah? It'll be like that. 
Like, I don't understand. Three days, you know, in the, in the belly of a whale, and then what? He was spit out, and he's like, exactly. And they're like, we don't get it. We don't understand what's going to happen. But they will, right? I believe part of the reason he kept telling them, and their minds were closed to it, is that there will be a time when the tomb is empty where they're like, we get it now. He, when he said he was going to die and raise again, you know what he meant? That he was going to die and then rise again. Because it was so out of their world to think through something like that. In fact, the Old Testament prophesies that that will happen. And then when Jesus is actually crucified on the cross, he makes his way to, uh, to Jerusalem. And Holy Week happens. And we would kind of call that Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter, that Holy Week. He literally raises from the dead. And the reason, check this out, the reason I believe that it's not so surprising that when he was crucified and nailed to the cross and then buried, that everybody just kind of walked away sad. Because I guarantee you, there are very few people in this room that have ever experienced something as horrific as a crucifixion. And if you were to watch that, you would have to know Nobody's coming back from that. That man is dead. The only one that comes back to life after that is God. To which Jesus says, exactly. So he is crucified. He's put in this tomb and he raises to new life. He begins to walk around, not in a spiritual sense, but in a very physical sense. People see him, people touch him, people eat with him. But at the same time, there is something different about him because he's like doing this thing through walls. Right? He's appearing in front of people. He's like disappearing. And we've already went through, if you want the apologetics of the resurrection of Christ, we've already spent a lot of time in that. In one of the other sermons, you have to go through online and find that sermon where he talked about the evidences for Jesus having risen from the grave. Because it is so important that if Jesus didn't actually raise from the dead, our faith is in vain. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we shouldn't be here right now. Because Jesus would not be God then. Because God... If he says, I'm going to raise to life, and then can't do it, he is no God. And Paul says that. So if you're like, Brian, that's really weird you said that. Paul says that, and we all trust that. And so Jesus did raise from the dead. So there's a bunch of defenses, apologetics, defenses of why we believe that happened and the necessity of that happening. So he raises, he walks around. He didn't show himself to like 10 people or 11 people or 12 people, but there's 400 people. In fact, secular historians also note that Jesus then walked around and showed himself to hundreds of people over the course of 40 days. Not three hours where there were rumors going. 40 days, 400 people in groups and in one-on-one and in small groups and in even larger groups. Eating with them, talking with them. Jesus showed him so he rose from the dead. And after he rose from the dead, in the midst of these 40 days, and in the midst of him showing himself to around 400 plus people, we get to our section of text right here. Luke chapter 24, verse 13. Let's read together. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and read. Um, I believe that you can trust me, but what I'd like is for us to know our Bibles well together. So if you have it, or your phone, whatever, you know, whip that thing out. Let's read together. Um, this is Luke Chapter 24, verse 13. That same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. 
As they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But God kept them from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? They stopped short, sadness written across their face. Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, You must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened there the last few days. What things? Jesus asked. The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles. He was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God. In all, in all, he w- in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priest and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. Verse 21, we had hoped he was the Messiah who had came to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. Verse 22, then some women from our group of his followers were at the tomb early this morning, and they came back with an amazing report. They said that his body was missing. They had seen angels who told them Jesus is alive. Some of our men ran out to see, and sure enough, his body was gone, just as the women had said. So first, up in verse 18, we see these, the, the, these two people, their response to Jesus saying, hey, what are you guys talking about? And their response is, oh, we're, we're talking about uh, this man, this Nazarene man. And he's like, what about it? And they're like, you've got to be the only person in the world who hasn't heard what's happened. Now it says that God kept them from knowing who Jesus was. And so he asks what things, and they begin to describe the things that Jesus had had done and who he was. They called him a man from Nazareth. They said he was a prophet, did powerful miracles, and a mighty teacher. They did not call him Savior. They did not call him Lord at this point. This is verse 20. But our leading priest and other religious leader handed him over to be condemned to death and they crucified him. And then they go on to say, you know, we had hoped he was the Messiah. So what their determination was is that we had hoped that he was the Messiah, the one that was prophesied to come, the one he claimed to be. But have you seen that crucifixion? And then he was dead, and they buried him. And then, and then they're kind of in this confused moment. But there's some women that went to go see him at the tomb. And when they came out, they were like, like he's gone. And they didn't trust these ladies. And so they sent some other people in there, and they go there, and they're like, those ladies were right. The tomb is empty. And they don't really know what to do with it. But I think we can tell by Jesus' response that something was missing, Right? They weren't saying we had hoped he was the Messiah and we were like, oh no, he's not. And then uh, these women came back and said this and the men confirmed it, that, that, he, that he'd risen from the grave. It must be the Messiah. Instead, they were in this like confused state. Like, how did that happen? And so this is Jesus' response. You, this is verse 25. You foolish people. You find it so hard to believe that all the prophets to believe all that the prophets wrote in scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all of these things before he entered his glory? 
Then Jesus took them, uh, oh yeah, then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things that concerned himself. This is incredible. If you just read like the road, you know, road to, and there's like movies about it or something, right? And there's like cute little phrases about, you know, what happened on the road to Emmaus. Check this out. Jesus then teaches these men about what the Old Testament scriptures taught about himself. Again, if you've heard people say Jesus never claimed to, to be God, like you have to read your Bible. He just went back and said all these things that the Old Testament talked about. That was God coming and saving his people. He's like, those things are about me. Let me tell you about those things. He, when he calls him a fool, um, Sometimes we use the word fool and we mean like, you're, you're just dumb. You're not that smart. Uh, fool in this context, I believe, was, was, was worse than that. Um, you know, you ever hear the phrase like, like you, can't, you can't fix stupid? Like this foolish word is saying that you're making like the moral bad decisions. Not that you're not intelligent, but you're making decisions that are kind of stupid. And so he calls them foolish because they're making decisions uh, that um, they're making bad decisions or immoral conclusions. He says, you're foolish. And, uh, and then there's this like moment for like pastors is very cool. And if you like love studying the Bible is very cool where uh, you kind of have uh, Jesus exegeting the Old Testament scriptures were about himself. And Kent Hughes puts it this way. He goes, the word of God incarnate explained the written word of God. You see what's happening? So what, what we do when we teach uh, the Old Testament, and now we teach the, Old, the, I mean, the New, New Testament, but Jesus, the Old Testament was there. And so as he begins to teach that, he's exegeting. He is teaching the, the Word of God that became flesh and dwelt among us is now teaching the Word of God that is about Himself. I can't explain it any better than that. I know I'm all over the place. But in my mind, I, just, I can't wrap my mind around that. That's just incredible that, that, that God you know, in, in Jesus is, is explaining the Word of God to people. It's just incredible. And it says that He goes to, um, to the teachings of Moses and the prophets. And it says, all these things that they're teaching, it's about me. So, what did he go to in the teachings of Moses and the prophets? Well, it doesn't say. But we could think, was it Genesis 3.15, where it says the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, who is Jesus? Or is it Genesis 9.8-17, the covenant with Noah? Was it Genesis 15.6, Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteous from the one who would come to fulfill all righteousness. Was it Genesis 22, where on Mount Moriah, Abraham takes his son up to sacrifice him. He raises the knife, and then he stops Abraham and says, I will provide the lamb. I will provide that sacrifice. And so instead of his son dying, he says, I will provide that sacrifice. Who's the sacrifice? Jesus is the sacrifice for our sins. Was it Exodus 3 through 12, from the burning bush to the freedom of God's people, sparing the life of, of the households by the blood of the lamb covering the doorpost? Was it Ezekiel 37, Micah 5, Malachi 4? We don't know. But they could have spent a lot of time walking those seven miles. It's about a two hour walk for somebody like me. Maybe less for somebody like them. But that's a lot of time to talk. 
Also, it says that um, it says that these things were necessary. In verse 26, 26, it says, Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things? In other translations, use the word, it was necessary. This was part of the plan, and we hit that a ton. If you've been to Cornerstone, you know we hit that a ton. It had to happen. It was not an accident. This was the plan. Jesus gave himself upon the cross. That's why he kept moving to Jerusalem when he could have ran away like Jonah. But instead, he, he moved towards Jerusalem. And there's a moment where he gets down on his knees, and he's, and he's talking to the Father in heaven. And he says, take this cup of suffering from me, but what I want is your will. So if this is what I must do, then I will do it. And so he knew, and then he, he got up, and then he walked, and he gave himself under the cross for you and I for the forgiveness of our sins. That's our Savior. Don't let the world tell you anything else. The Bible says that if a gospel comes that is not this gospel, even if it appears to be on the tongues of angels, it is no gospel at all. This world has thousands and thousands and thousands of gospels. And we believe that there's one true gospel, because the Bible is the inspired, infallible Word of God that He has given His people to show you the way. It defines how we live our life. It is the compass. It is the original document that then we compare our life, our thoughts, our dreams, our prayers to to make sure that it fits within the will of God. It is Scripture. God breathed. Verse 28, by this time they were nearing Emmaus and the end of the journey. Jesus acted as if He were going to go on, but they begged Him to stay. Stay the night with us since it's getting late. So he went home with them. As they sat down to eat, he took bread and blessed it. And then he broke it and gave it to them. Very interesting moment. He begins to do this kind of like breaking bread and giving it to uh, his, his people again. And at that moment, it says, suddenly their eyes were open and they recognized him. And it was then at that moment that he disappeared. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he was talking? Like, like we should have known, right? He's talking, we should have known. Right? Like our, when he was talking, the reason why we told the weird guy that was walking with us to stay is because our hearts burned. We knew it was true. When he talked to us on the road and explained to us the scriptures. And within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven disciples and the others who had gathered with them and said, The Lord has really risen. He appeared to Peter. The Lord has really risen. That was another moment as, as Jesus, then after he'd raised, spent 40 days uh, engaging over 400 plus people. His purpose was for people to say, he has really risen. That's why he said, touch the holes in my hand. Look at my scars. Jesus has really risen. And we remember that until the day we die. One of the ways that we were commanded by God to remember that is communion. We're going to have a couple people come up and grab these uh, trays and hand it out. We do have communion. They are the uh, cup and bread all in one. You'll find that they are easy to open and accessible. So uh, just a side note, we have told you that we're switching back to like the juice and the bread. Um, but we're a Baptist church and we found a new box of these ones that are prepackaged, so we're going we're gonna to muscle our way through these. But um, I tested them twice and showed people here who are early so that they would not uh, um, kick me out of the church. So uh, go ahead. Uh, this is going to go around. And here, here's the deal. As these are being passed out, 
If you are a follower of Jesus, we participate in this together until the day that he returns or that we see Jesus remembering the work that he has done on the cross and that has been applied to our life. So if you were here and you're like, hey, bro, I don't know what this like little snack you're passing around is, but I'm not really a follower. I'm just curious about who Jesus is or my friends invited me here. That's totally cool. Here's what I'd say. Just pass that by. Right. It's not your proximity to churchy things. Right. It's faith. And so if you were like, I haven't placed my faith in Jesus yet. Uh, I've not made him Savior and Lord of my life. Let that pass by. And that's the right thing. The good, that's a good thing to do. And while that happens, you might like, well, it's going to be awkward because I'm not going to participate. I tell you what, if you have never felt loved before, if you are here and you're like, I'm just curious about who Jesus is. I'm going to let this little snack cup thing go by me. We absolutely love you and are super excited that you're here and hope you keep on coming back. And if you have questions, uh, you can talk to the person that drug you here um, or you can talk to myself as well and we'll kind of help start explaining this stuff, okay? So what we're about to do, this is something that those who are followers of Jesus, we do together in order to remember and keep our minds focused on things above and that is what Christ has done to save us from ourselves. You may see bread and juice. They represent something. The bread represents his body on the cross, fully man and fully God. The juice represents his blood shed, which seals in this new covenant of grace, saved by the blood of Jesus. So, I want to read you something from Luke chapter 22. This is verse 19. It says, He took some bread and He gave thanks to God for it. Then He broke it into pieces and gave it to His disciples, saying, This is My body, which is given for you. And He says, Do this and remember to Me. So we eat this bread, remembering, focusing our minds again on the work on the cross, that we have nothing to boast about. It's all in Christ alone. It goes on in verse 20 to say, After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. So remember the blood poured out, confirming his promise that his work on the cross is enough, and it was a sacrifice for us for the forgiveness of the sins of many. So we take this together. Let's pray. Glorious Father in heaven, 
I pray that our hearts would be far more far more passioned with the task of knowing really who you are than trying to create in our minds the God that we would like. I pray that we would go to your word to learn who our God is. We go to your word to learn our purpose and identity in you. And I pray that we go to your word in order for us to gain purpose and we go to your word in order to learn what we're supposed to do while we live here on earth. How do we live our life? I pray that we go to your word as we see the greatest act of love ever known to man and that is when God humbled himself and came to earth in the incarnation and lived the life that was sinless, that we've all failed to live, and then stepped onto that cross and willingly gave yourself on that cross in our place so that we can be reconciled to you. We love you. We praise you. And in your son's name, we pray these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast by Cornerstone Church of Ione. We hope that you found it encouraging and challenging. Please feel free to share this podcast with friends and family, and we will see you all next week.